This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. G'day, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. I've got a conversation with the one and only Blitz from Overkill to share with you. Now, the catalyst for the conversation with Blitz is due to the launch of a new album from Overkill. This one is titled Scorched. Throughout this conversation, of course, we talk about the album, namely the guitar soloing and the guitar playing, the return of Colin Richardson for production duties, lyrical themes. Yeah, we dive deep into the lyrical themes and actually expand into the world of social and current affairs too. So that's a very interesting aspect of this conversation. Yeah, this is a conversation that it might even be reprised. We might even have a part two to offer sometime in the near future. I am going to play a tune for you. If you are listening via the podcast apps, this one is called Wicked Place. Once it's done, we'll dive into the chat. You people on YouTube, let's get to it now. Either way, let's go. Sad, sad face Tell me what would bring you To this 
Hey, bro. How are you, Andy? G'day, mate. It's been a, been a while. It's been a few years. I don't know whether you remember. We had about two or three chats in, in 2017, I think it was now, going back that far. Skype chats, right? Spot on. You remember. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I was a grinding wheel then. Yeah, grinding wheel yeah, and there was an Australian wheel. tour. Yeah, and an Australian oh, tour is all the two of them, yeah. That's right. That was right. That was the that was the second Australian tour we ever did. That was good fun. It was, yeah. Yeah, it was one of those things where my kids are a bit older now, so I can actually get out and go to gigs, but it was one of those gigs that I had to forfeit due to the fact that, you know, young infants and that sort of thing, it was just too hard to sort of get out. And yeah, you're probably my favourite band, the favourite band of mine that I haven't seen yet. So, mate, please tell me an Australian tour is somewhere on the agenda. Well, you could have given the kids back. <laughs> Mate, my wife's half Croatian. She would have beaten me up. <laughs> I see you're a bass player. I mean, you're a bass player. You must be even you must be even busier with that. I can see it in the background there. Yeah, spot on. Yeah, yeah. I've got a, a I'm not a big gig. I mean, got nothing compared to what you guys do, but a big gig for us at one of the taverns locally here. But it's a you know, one of the higher paying gigs and stuff. But yeah, you're right, mate. It's between working. I work from home, obviously. I'm a journal and I work from home and um then being a parent and householder and husband and stuff, and then playing in the band on the weekends, mate. There's never a bloody dull moment, I can tell you. <laughs> you know the you know the joke about the bass player. He, he walks into a music shop and he and he's trying to figure out what what instrument he wants. And and the guy said, "Well, you could try the bass. I mean, you could start off easily with the bass, and I could give you mm. lessons." And he's like, "All right." So he gets a bass and he takes his first lesson. He learns the E string. The guy says, "I want you to learn the E string. Come back next week." And the guy never shows up. The bass player never shows up. Two weeks go by. The guy keeps leaving messages, and finally, finally, the bass player calls the instructor back. Like after a month and a half, he goes, "Hey," I said, "Why are you ignoring my messages?" He goes, "Oh man, I learned that fucking E string, and I'm I got gigs all over the fucking place now. I'm so busy." <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. I don't know whether DD ever found this when he was coming up, but I found I used to go to this is back in the day when sessions were a real thing where you actually got called and you went to Melbourne or whatever and yeah, go to this studio here and there'll be some stuff for you to play. And when I used to I used to play really, you know, like Billy Sheehan less not like that, but you know, approach it that way, like more notes is better, sort of thing. The irony is, mate, was that as soon as I started just playing the fucking E string and the A string, more calls came through. I used to get, yeah, this guy's great. <laughs> He's great. Right. He's not a problem. He doesn't bring the other two strings into it, so he's not a problem. Yeah, I, I, I did sessions where I did sessions where I listened back to the recording afterwards, and I had to ask, "Is the bass even on there?" Because I can't hear it, like a la yeah. Jason Newstead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I mean, that's one thing that I've always been blessed with. The you know, they'll always say, you know, I can I can tell Overkill by Bobby's voice. I say, yeah. Before I'm singing, there's that fucking clanking bass in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. I say, if you pay attention, you're a you know you're a bass aficionado. You'll you'll recognize Dee Dee Bernie and his clank. Oh, you two together are a hand in glove. I couldn't imagine the band without you guys together. I mean, to your point, your voice and his bass sound—that's the sound of Overkill, in my opinion. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, how many years is it? I mean, what you know, why mess with something that's working for us? I remember my niece asking me, you know, what do what do you really do for a living? She had some project, you know, at school. And interviewing my brother, he's an attorney. Her her mother's a really high end nurse. There was my father was an attorney. He has all sorts of professions. He got to me, and I I said, I said, well, I alienate the masses and endear myself to a small minority. That's that's exactly <laughs> what I do <laughs> with this irritating voice. 
Well, it's, it certainly works. I've always thought you were like a Bon Scott, you know, from that sort of ilk. Would you agree? Do you get that feedback often? You know, here and there. Um, you know, and it's funny because, you know, my first gig as a singer uh, was I, th- I thought I was going in as bass player. I mean, I had, you know, mm. I had a precision. I have an old Hofner. I have a, actually I have a Fender Mustang short neck. Um, and, uh, I, you know, it was a cover band in college and they were doing ACDC and some priests. And, you know, and I thought that that's what I was asked to do, but they obviously needed a singer. You know, I showed up, there was already a bass player there. And, and I, you know, I cut my, I cut my teeth on a couple of old Bond and I think Brian Johnson was singing by then and back in black had been out. So mm. I had done some ACDC and it just was, you know, it was kind of in my wheelhouse, but you know, it, it's not really, I don't know if if you can say my voice is cut from that or, you know, we're, we're cut from the same cloth, but for sure, I just wasn't afraid to do it. And I think that mm. that's really the bottom line. A lot of guys get behind a mic or girls who get behind a mic and it's like, you know, I don't want to do this. Uh, for many of them, for me, I didn't give a shit, you know, and I think that not giving a shit really, that's what got me the gig. It's, it's That's a really interesting point because I do singing as well. I do some lead vocals too, and I find that I uh, adopt personas depending on the song. Playing covers, you've really got to try to remain as faithful to the song as you can, but even in and amongst that, the, glo- the vocal archetype I work toward playing covers is Richard Butler from Psychedelic Furs, so that... Uh, the coming from the top down sort of thing. So did you have to do that early on or were you just always you? Well, I think I just always was, was me. I just didn't have anything that was melodic. You know, I was a cigarette smoker. I was a partier. I mean, you know, I mean, I like yelling. I like loud music. I like punk. My mother sang like an angel, you know, she, I mean, she toured with fucking Mitch Miller. I mean, she wasn't like, you know, just mm. some singer. She she hung an eight by 10 up in the, she had an eight by ten hung up in the uh, Copacabana in New York, but I mean, mm. she comes from Irish immigrant parents who had there was nine there was nine sisters. I mean, it's like, there's no such thing as not a choir when you have nine Irish sisters. If you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying, they're all leaning against they're all leaning yeah. against the fireplace on a Sunday harmonizing for the grandparents. Yeah. So all the kids had no problem understanding that singing was just a natural. You know, this was natural in other in other houses. Maybe it wasn't, but in our house. And probably other houses it was, but I mean, I don't think it's the norm that everybody sits around and sings on a Sunday. Uh, but in our house, it was, you know. So I mean, I, I think for me, I just, I just, it wasn't that I had the balls. It was just kind of, oh yeah, everybody doesn't everybody do this, you know, that kind mm. of thing. Yeah, I think if you're Catholic, like you probably likely are, like me and Irish origin, you grow up singing hymns too. That's the other thing. Yeah. It's inescapable. It's unavoidable. It's, I grew up as a kid in the 80s and through the 90s, and that's just what we did every bloody Sunday. So whether you liked it or not, you were singing. It threw you up in a choir loft, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I did that too, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then you lose it. Your voice starts to break at about 13 or 14 or whatever it is, and then you yeah, lose see, it. See, that's and... the thing with me. I never went through puberty, so I can <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, mate, I've got to say, you're in this this album here, A Scorched, um, I, th- I thought it was your 19th, but apparently it's your 20th. So either way, it's, you, you're well into it now. Of course you are. As I like to joke, you're damn close to making it a career. Um, <laughs> you've been... <laughs> You've been on a stellar run of form. Now, realistically, you've been on a stellar run of form since White Devil Armory is in. The album seemed to be getting better, which is a heck of a thing to be saying this far into a career. Um, look, I understand that 
the the album too was one of those albums that you either wrote and or recorded through COVID. So was that was that challenging? Well, sure. I mean, you know, I mean, it it just kind of changed the game. Um, you know, I mean, there's plenty of snow on this roof means that there's plenty of experience here with regard to writing songs, but they were done a certain way, and that was that we would always spend some type of time together. Um, you know, us with whoever the drummer was, and now Jason for the last couple of records, mm. uh, Ron Lipnicki before that, and so on and so on. You know, we'd be there for the drum tracks and scratching out some scratch guitars and bass and, you know, maybe a vocal track here and there. If somebody, you know, if, if Jason wanted to hear that track. So, we, you know, it was that hands-on old school in the room, you know, let's sweat it. Somebody cracks a couple of beers. Somebody brings in some some pizza and some spring water and we have a few laughs. And, and that's the beginning of the record. So, so when this was totally remote, it was just that all we, I think we had to do was accept that we had no choice. There were, you know, there was no complaining about it. It wasn't like, oh, this is going to suck. It was just kind of, well, you know, we're kind of from both schools. I mean, we've we've embraced the technology of file trading. So let's just fucking do it. Let's see what happens. And Jason snuck out of the house and I guess it was May. And he was done with all the drum tracks by early June of 2020. And, and, um, and those drum tracks never changed, you know, from that point on. So we had this foundation to start fucking with for shit over two years you know mm-hmm. i mean two plus years you know the guitar dave's fucking with his end of it Didi's fucking with it and i'm fucking with it so we're just all we're doing is working around those drum tracks remotely and i think to some degree to have the luxury of time which is one of the things we've never embraced in the past um you know gave us good results you know we just kind of said fuck it eventually you know i wrote the record three times i mean i was writing these depressing lyrics and even the melody lines were depressing. I was like, oh my God, I sound like some kind of a gothic person. <laughs> hey, no offense to the gothic people, but I mean, all you got to do is look at me until you can tell I'm not one. Yeah. But, you know? <laughs> but, the, but the point is, I think the results were good, you know, based on that luxury of time. Yeah, well, it whether it was a different approach or the fact that you had the time, the album's fucking awesome. And and one of the key features that I noticed is there's two things. Okay, so you work with Colin Richardson, but I'll get to him in the moment. Okay, because that was perfect. Dave and Derek have really taken it to the next level. Do you agree? And and do you feel like as though they they focus more intently on producing more melodic solos? I think the the the, the two people who benefited the most from this record, uh, myself and Dave Linsk. Uh, Dave does you know he he puts everything through the meat grinder. And I think in shorter time spans, um, you mi- it's not that you miss some things, but you don't see all the, mm. the options that you may have. And I think that that's one of the things he did. And as time passed, I, re- I remember listening to it, you know, the record, we both had the record. We were, we'd been out on the road and, you know, we were home by like March 15th of 2020 because Peter Pandemic was flying all around and, you yeah. know, making us wear masks and all sorts of other happy horse shit. You know, I got home and, I, you know, by, by May, I was talking to him. I'm like, what do you think? He goes, oh, geez, I don't even know where this fucking shit's going, you know? Maybe he had a skeletal demo he'd given us. But I think that it gave him time to embrace it um, and make it better. I mean, he became part of the song. I think that when, you know, you look at the diversity on the record, where you go from the thrash shit of Twist of the Wick right into a blues ride for mm. Wicked Place, you think to yourself, how the fuck can one band do two fucking things? Well, that's somebody like Dave putting it through the meat grinder. 
but you can hear those leads going from that blistering shred in um and melodies in in um, twist of the wick and then to wicked place where it's this tasteful fucking bluesy thing and i think that that's stamped you know he's I, i'm not gonna say most improved player but i i think for sure uh the guy that gave he gave the record its its wings is what i think yeah yeah, I tend to agree. Yeah, that might be the extra dimension that I'm hearing. So I've only listened to it three or four times. But first of all, I love it when this happens. You have an album on in the background and it draws you in. Doesn't happen often, I've got to be frank these days, because I think at this point I've probably heard everything. But in terms of stylistic approaches and the like, but this album here was one of those ones where it was on in the background. I thought, shit, I'm going to have to go back and rewind that song and listen to it again a little bit louder. And that's what I'm talking about where it's it's the songwriting and the way you're approaching things seems to be improving from the perspective that the end result is this very fucking compelling album. So, you know, I guess there's something, you know, it was a dirty word, you know, a decade ago before we were in our 50s, not in our 60s. <laughs> and, that's, and that's maturity. Um, yeah. You know, there's something to be said for for knowing what to do in in that spot. And you know, you add the extra time to that. And I think that that's where it worked. You know, if, if Dave, you know, Didi has a skeletal demo and he's, you know, I'm bouncing shit off him. Dave's bouncing shit off me. I'm bouncing shit off Dave. It's going all like circular, you know, and it's kind of a whirlwind of ideas. And and you, you just run every option that you fucking have, you know, and I, that's why I tore this record down, you know, besides being depressing, I'm like, God, look at all these other things that are being exposed to by, you know, Dave and his, you know, his, I don't know, his, his meter of heavy, you know, he's like right. our heavy guy. You know? so it's like, you want right. a heavy, you go to Dave, you want a fucking melodic, you go to Didi or you go to me. But, um, Hey, listen, for some reason it fucking works. So, you know, why question it or, or, or say, will you do it again? I'm like, I'll do it. I'll do anything again. I mean, I love the fucking opportunity to, to be able to still be doing records and still have them viable. 38 years into uh, almost career, you know? Yeah, definitely, yeah. And and I mentioned something else through through that exchange there with Colin Richardson. I mean, I, I feel like as though I feel like as though he's your guy now, and that's only after hearing it three or four times, but he's given you guys a sonic sheen that I haven't quite heard before, to be honest. So so do you feel the same way about working with Cole as that it was a match made in heaven, and do you think you'll work with him even on the next album? Huge amount of comfortability with Colin, you know? I mean, he's been... He's been part of the team now for four times, you know, Underground and Below, uh, Bloodletting, Killbox, uh, Killbox mm. Soup to Nuts, you know. And that was like, you know, he was there from the first note in New Jersey, you know, living on the beach. <clears throat> and he would come up to Didi's studio and we'd all, you know, we'd all convene there and have lunch and sandwiches and shoot the shit and talk about where we're going. But there was, a, you know, there's a great trust in that kind of uh, production. <clears throat> I think that Killbox was one of the heaviest pieces of real estate we ever did um it just happened to be in a time when this particular type of music was mm. you know its popularity was waning you know it was 2003 or four i guess four and uh, so i think I, I think the point is is that it was it was never that he wasn't the right guy for the job it was that we'd gone through so many other things looking for something and we said you know we actually already had it with fucking colin mm. and you know we've progressed or matured uh, I'm sure Colin has. And he added a guy named Chris Clancy, who, you know, it's it's kind of a duality of team kind of a thing. If it's Dee Dee and I, you know, if the song starts with Dee Dee and ends with me, that's a duality of how that song uh, comes to fruition. Uh, I think Colin and Chris are the same. Um, 
taking that a step further, we brought it to be mastered to uh, Mayor Applebaum in uh, Los Angeles. Now, listen, this isn't an organic record, but for fuck's sake, I mean, there is something very reminiscent of a guitar tone that is screaming 1990s in there and a drum mm. resonance um, that is, is, you know, matching that guitar tone from kind of that same era. Now, sure, there's a, a digital modern punch to that, but it's like being in two places simultaneously. And I think that that was achieved um, by Colin. You know, and when I started hearing it, I mean, the only the only input we gave was don't make it so fucking compressed and loud that people can't listen to the whole thing loud. You know, if you oh, listen yeah. to a loud record all compressed or too compressed, it's like it wears your ears out. But this was something that was just, you know, it's just a thing of beauty by the time it was done. And, and not with two tons of input from us, just kind of like a lot of head shaking and wide eyes and smiles like, yeah, 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 yeah. More, 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 more. <laughs> so, yeah good time yeah you, you can hear that yeah now it's awesome when a producer comes in and just gets what the band is about and you don't have to issue too many instructions because they're the albums that i feel don't work there's too many examples to to mention there especially some of the latter day metallica stuff or whatever you were i mean i mean you're competing that's another point you're competing against when i say and i feel this way because i'm of a i'm of the vintage but jamie jaster you've probably spoken to him before talks about high tide raises all ships i don't think it does i think metallica there's only so much oxygen in the room for rock and metal when metallica have a release they tend to take up a lot of it so in terms of the promotions that side of thing you guys are a band that sell yourselves so it's not necessarily about that but how do you feel about social media and the way in which you can get your music across to, and here's the key point, young and impressionable listeners. Have you got a strategy around that? Well, you know, I don't know if we necessarily have a strategy around it, but, you know, our our record label does. Um, I think that the key to any type of longevity in this business through the changes, and obviously, Mike, you know, you're looking at somebody who's seen, I came in at the age of excess. I called it, you know, the the end of the cocaine years. It's not like I ever had a record, you know, executive jump cocaine in front of me. It, it just, mm. I just say it because that's what people think that's it the is. Era. Yeah, it never happened. But the but the point is, it was vinyl and it was it was cassettes, and then it turned digital with the CDs, and it became, you know, it's eventually streaming. If you don't if you don't reinvent yourself to some capacity or at least surround yourself with the right people to who understand that from a position of youth um i think you're lost you know i mean it, it's easy to be a dinosaur in this all you gotta do is sit there and complain and then you, you go back and you look and you say this fucking guy doesn't have any social media that's probably the big problem or he's running the social media like it would be the worst thing if i'm running the social media because i really don't give a flying fuck what people think <laughs> about you know I don't have a fucking Facebook. <laughs> I don't want Facebook. I don't want a personal thing. You know, yeah. I used to get from my aunt, you know, can't say hi to your cousin on the Facebook. I'm like, what's that? I said, why doesn't my cousin give me a call? <laughs> yeah. Why does my cousin give me a call? Yeah. So yeah, give I'm me just a second. My dog barking outside. You hear it? Yeah, yeah. Just go for it. Girlfriend's with her. She was chasing. Uh, she was chasing skunks and cats before. But I've always read Jared Shepherds here. We live in like the northwest of uh, New Jersey. It's all mountains and lakes. It's a oh, really great area for yeah. man. The dogs are like. 
Yeah, I know. We live in the cane fields here on the north side of the Gold Coast, and I've got a bull terrier. So whenever there's there's cane toads and cane toads and possums for us, and there's the occasional lorikeet or something like that that will scream his bark his bloody head off at. But yeah, yeah, similar vibe, very different reasons. <laughs> hey, you you might remember uh, I. I tend to go fairly broad with my conversations and I start bringing in some social issues and the like. And I always love talking to the established, the icons, which, I, which I've which i got to say, you're, you're definitely one of them, the icons of uh, the extreme metal and the heavy metal genre. So lyrical themes and the like, we've talked about this in the past, as I mentioned, but this time around, since we caught up in 2017, there's just been so much happen. Okay. So we, we, last week, I think it was, or this week, there was another bloody school shooting. But this time, the dominant narrative of the moment from big tech, social media, and uh, mainstream social media and mainstream media um, is all of the trans things. So that's got caught in, got bought into that. So of course, you're starting to see some narratives around that. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, okay? Because I feel like we've gone from COVID hysteria, me to Trump derangement syndrome, Black Lives Matter riots, Antifa takeovers of great cities in the United States like Seattle and Portland, the Capitol Hill event, the Ukraine uh, war, the Chinese warmongering, espionage on a global scale. Need I go on? Of course not. You know what I'm talking about. But there's all of these things that are right for you to pick at from a lyrical perspective. So did you dive into any of these topics? You know, I I don't... um... Uh, I dove into a little of the lockdown kind of stuff uh, because, you know, I think I was living it at the time uh, that it became personal. I think that one of the more important things for me to do um, when I'm when I'm writing lyrics is to distance myself from the news. Um, just I mean, just for peace of mind and and probably better mental and physical health. I mean, I mean, you could throw up half the time. I mean, I mean, this whole Nashville thing the other day. I mean, it was just, I mean, it's just gut wrenching to see that kind of, that kind of stuff and how it, it, it's the 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 event itself is bad enough, but to twist a narrative around it as if somebody's being a spin doctor to say mm. that this is more important than the actual event itself uh, makes it that much worse. And I think you got it. Yeah, you know whether it be. Trump derangement syndrome. I think there's an absolute media derangement syndrome here um, that everything is a pecking order. Everything has been politicized. And if you look at the country and uh, this country in particular, I mean, uh, when I get my news, I go actually, believe it or not, I go to Sky News in, in Australia, you know, because yeah. I just I think it's a little bit more not balanced. It's got a source of news. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they're looking for more, you know, from the outside. And I. Um, but I think that. Um, it's not the country is not split down the middle 50-50. Everybody yeah. seems to believe that we are a 50-50 split. It's not. It's the fucking extreme right and the extreme left that seems to hold all the fucking power. Um, whereas 80% of the Americans, regardless of what their pol- political party may be, are common sense, good thinking fucking people. Not fucking podunk hillbillies and not all fucking elitist Democrats, for instance. You know, it's just good fucking people there in the center. But it's being run by that 20%, 10% on each end. And that's who is <clears throat> presenting the narratives um, in, in these uh, situations. And I, and I think it's abs- absolutely a shame. You know, I really look forward to the fact that um, 
you know, the the coming uh, 2024 elections, uh, you know, I mean, we keep hoping every election is going to be a better one. Um, I just hope that this is the one where people say enough of this fucking horse shit. You know, you were getting rich off of our fucking sweat and and making us feel guilty. And I think it's just a bunch of crap. But I didn't go uh, very deeply into social issues except for the pandemic, obviously the surgeon a little bit. uh, But it was more of a pushback. It was more, you know, had enough of this. Uh, Let's let the blood and get rid of the infection. Uh, Hmm. Fever. Fever actually, I mean, fever actually has dates in it that, you know, when the tour was canceled in 2020, in, you know, in the center section, I think the line is 3 12 20, we're all shot down. You know, that mm. kind of a, you know, yeah. that kind of an approach to things. So it's a little bit historical there, but I didn't go into all the other, all the other stuff that happens uh, socially and politically in the States. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, you know, Andrew Bogut, the NBA player, an Aussie bloke who, is now over. He, he he very much points out a lot of these things that go on and uh, brings it to mainstream people's attention who may not be paying attention to the news and the like. And uh, I think from that perspective, does the sport and music does it play a role to take you away from all of this bullshit that we've got in the day to day, or is it also a vehicle? Because they're both correct. Now they're both correct perspectives in terms of they both work. We've seen that. Or does sport, particularly music, I should say. Does that play more of a role in that it can highlight some of the bullshit that's going on out there and then direct people toward more credible news sources, like you're saying, with Sky News and the like? Because there's this just you bang on point, Blitz. I mean, there's this issue where 80 to 90% of the population are just numb to what the hell's going on, whilst the 10% on the fringes of either side. Let's face it, it'd be nine, it'd be 1% on the far right, 9% on the far left, because the far left have got big tech, social media, mainstream media. Yeah. Um they control this narrative. So this thing about the school shooting has gone from being about, of course, the gun issue is always going to be an issue in the United States. It's always going to be a hot topic, if you like. But now it's become a trans issue. And you've got to be careful about how you're referring to this person who fucking killed kids, whether they are they, them, or Zizu, or a fucking, how about they're just a piece of shit? How about we just go with that narrative as opposed to be worrying about whether or not we're figuring out their fucking pronouns or not? Well, I think, you know... uh... I, and I can only guess this. I mean, I can't, I'm, I'm not in that community, but I would think that, you know, when, when this came out, um, where the information came out after the shooting, it was the one thing after another. And one of the, one of the talking points was, you know, a mental health issue for, for the shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, now the point is, is that it's, this person is trans and has a mental health issue. And I think somewhere in there, that fringe element wants to say, oh, no, no, no. She doesn't have a, this person doesn't have a mental health issue because she's trans. You all got to know that. And now we're fearing for our lives. So you've mm. taken what becomes the real issue and jumped in front of the fact and jumped in front of the tragedy with your own narrative about mental health slash trans. So it it devalues it devalues the lives of those lost in that situation yeah. because something else has become more important than that. And I think if if we start uh, losing sight of that, and I mean, obviously we're the school shooting capital of the entire fucking world. I mean, that's just the way it works here. I guess. I mean, uh, I'm not saying it's good. I mean, obviously, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying. Uh, that because of our gun laws and because of mental health issues, 
we you know lead the world in that type of uh, in that uh, in that crime or that horrific event. Mm. Uh, but I don't think it should be politicized or socialized to that of oh you know now we're we're all fearing for our lives because we're trans and you know you said that we have mental health issues. It's about fucking Nashville. Done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, they find a way to insert cult, identity politics and critical race theory into almost everything. You know, broad brushstroke here. I know that it's a broad brushstroke to call it this cultural Marxism, but that's where they're coming from, and it's just sick. And uh, now you've got issues in the state of Victoria here in Australia where they're drafting legislation for fucking preteens to become trans without the consent of, consent of their parents. And this, I think it's going on in California too, by the way. I could be wrong, but I think uh, I saw a lot now, about there's politics. Some, there's some states that are doing that, blue states here, that, that have you know, yeah. protection rights for kids that, without telling the parents, et cetera. So. It's sick. It's yeah. sick. And I don't know where the hell we're going to with this stuff here. It's the, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, Mark II. And uh, at some point in time, mate, um, I, I hope the ship writes. So, look, I'll... Uh, I'll move on to back to the music. <laughs> Thanks for sharing your views on those topics too, by the way. I think it's important to do that because you are looked up to out there and people, and I know a lot of my listeners, are they're not dumb. I can tell yeah, you that, is, mate. This is a personal standpoint on this. I mean, you should know that. I mean, I, I never think that I should be in a position that I should be leading people with my you know feeling about things. All, all I stated was common sense mm, uh, agreed, through this yeah. entire, that entire part of this. You know, and, and I... And I really get irritated by dudes, you know, they can, you know, a guy can write a record and it's like, it's got, you know, it got a little bit hot and people appreciate it. And the second record, they become better songwriters, but a third record, they're fucking superstars. They're the same douchebag who wrote the first fucking record. You know what I mean? It's not like they didn't get all of a sudden smarter. They got richer, <laughs> which makes people want to listen to what they have to say, but it doesn't mean they're any smarter than the beginning. And I kind of, you know, maybe I have some experience and I've been around the world a bunch of times, um, but I think people need to make up their own minds. I think that that's where you find, you know, recognize your own soul uh, as, as opposed to the soul of myself or, or others in, in the mm. music industry. Yeah, you, your opinion's valid, though. You talk about having a bit more snow on the snow on the roof, so to speak, but you came through the education system at a time where it was an education system. It wasn't an indoctrination system. And uh, you had to pass exams, and there was a winner and a loser out in the sporting field, all this. The same – I was a lot, probably the last generation that did that, uh, being part of Gen X. But uh, it's important that we see world – that it, it is a, it's a binary equation a lot of the time. There are winners and losers, and there are opinions that lead to bad outcomes, and there are opinions that lead to better and more positive outcomes, depending on the context and the circumstance and yeah I, I just, now we could go on all yeah. fucking night over a six pack on this and it would be uh you know i think we would would tend to agree with each other i i have no doubt we would yeah yeah no doubt yeah what about i'm going to go completely left turn here okay i like all of your albums i like the stylistic change after bobby left and you started writing more groove oriented stuff too and I think a lot of people appreciate about the band that you found a way to get by. But do you have a least favorite era, epoch, or even Overkill album? No era. I I can't say an era. Um, I think probably my least favorite Overkill record is the Relics record, but it's primarily based on production. Um, mm. I think that we got caught in something that was um was a little weird at that time and we just couldn't bail ourselves out of it. I think we had some shitty fucking guitar tones on that record. 
Um, I didn't think the songwriting was all that bad. But the record's kind of a lost soul to me. I used to not like I Hear Black so much, but as time passed, I thought to myself, wow, that actually is just a record that's just a, just a few months shy of development for me. But still, there's some fucking heavy shit on that record. Um, the era probably I'm the most proud of is, is believe it or not, is the 90s, because this, you yeah. know, this shit was harder to do back in the 90s. You know, and that's you know, that's and that should be noted. You know, this wasn't like the flavor of the day. This wasn't like, um, you know, uh, look at me kind of a thing. You had to kind yeah. of you had to cut carve your niche. You had to had to make shit happen and we were still touring and still releasing and still finding labels you know i mean there was i mean you know five years before that there was a hundred thrash bands uh, somewhere around our level you know or Mm. maybe 50 or something uh somewhere around and then all of a sudden there's 10 you know and so the point is is that the field opened up but i think that you know it gave us the opportunity to go back to the underground and do what we do best um release some in my opinion, some great records. I mean, the underground and below Collins first record with us to me is still one of my favorite records. Yeah. Um, and that's because it wasn't the easiest thing to do at the time. So it's uh, that era to me is, uh, you know, something that I think is, Oh, that's, you know, kind of the measure of the men um, era. Horoscope is probably one of the, without question, I think is probably one of the greatest thrash albums ever, ever recorded. But do you feel like as though that's your signature album? Well, I think it's probably the the start of the second chapter. You know, um, Mm. the original chapter being the first four records with uh, Bobby Gustafson in there, Rat Skates for a couple. Sid Falk was a great drummer. He came into, you know, even into that horoscope era um, and played great on that. You know, he had become really a quintessential brass drummer at that point. I mean, you know, to me, there was only a couple. There was, you know, there was, you know, the um, Lombardo. Charlie, Charlie Benante, and and I think you know I would oh, pick Sid Gene, right yeah, there. Gene you know, right as well, up. yeah, yeah, all great, yeah, yeah, Gene, right, Gene. Oh, right, the Dark Angel stuff. We took them out during that that era, but Sid was up there. I mean, whatever, top five, top ten. I mean, he was just, you know, he was just, he became a monster and made that record happen. But that's the beginning of the second era, I think. Mm, yeah. What about what about tours and the like? Is is there any? Are there any places that you wouldn't tour again? In other words, it's just finan- not financially viable or it's proven to be just too hard to graft? Well, I, I mean, I like going everywhere. I mean, that's not a problem. But, I mean, there's some places where they do festivals where you just can't believe that, how far you got to go in a van. I, I remember doing a festival in Bulgaria once where there mm. was no airport anywhere near the city where this festival was. And the it was us in Exodus, and it was like we flew into – Bucharest, Romania, and then we had to drive nine hours in a fucking van. Oh, my and God, was, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, it's like 12 guys in a fucking van, all crunched in with our stuff for a nine-hour fucking ride. And I got out of the van, I stretched myself, I said, that's it, never again. I will never come here again. <laughs> this is the way I have to come here. And I didn't even do a show. I mean, it was I was just standing in front of the hotel at that point. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do, is, is Eastern Europe still a bit challenging to tour? Occasionally, based on travel, based on the roads, um, you know, it depends where. If you, you know, if you're if you're smashing in and out of the bigger cities, if you're in Vilnius, Lithuania, that's not hard. If you're in Tallinn, Estonia, a Czech Republic's fucking awesome. 
Poland is great. Uh, I love playing Budapest. Budapest is one of my favorite cities. You know, it's just, I don't know, it's just kind of affordable fun all over the place. It's kind of like, uh, to me, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe, I mean, redneck's not the right word, but it's like the, uh, like the redneck Paris, you know? <laughs> I've got to go. <laughs> you convinced me. Well, there you have it. The legendary Blitz from Overkill. I reckon guys of Blitz's vintage, the guys that have been around for decades, they're my favorite interview subjects, I've got to say. I love doing the Cradle of Filth stuff and I love talking to guys like Blitz from Overkill because they're intelligent and no topic seems to be off limits. Yes, we love the music, but we're not just about the music, are we? We've still got to lead our lives. So yeah, it's always really cool to dive into other topics to do with the world of current affairs, social events, and politics. Okay. Now, if you like that chat, there are many more just like it over at scarsandguitars.com. Whilst you're there, click on the link in the banner and you'll be taken to a gateway to where you can download a sample of my book, Scars and Guitars, Volume 1, Conversations from the World of heavy metal and beyond and if you do complete the purchase because you like the sample hit me up because i want to thank you personally on that note there's some more information to share with you about the book but before we get to that i need to bid you a fond farewell my name is andrew mckay smith and i'm the host of the scars and guitars podcast series until next time it is a very goodbye for now this is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal, and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a, a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Yeah, wise words there. Sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I I can't go do Cold Chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the the fans and the staying power of the the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms it, yes. Playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction to George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then-President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, I, just, I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place. And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with Sepultura. 
percussive overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldiner. Chuck was always, um, you know, he was he was very, you know, very open-minded, and and he was into having his his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for for the best stuff that they had. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five and Manson gave me that name and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favourite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book. <laughs>